Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome to the show. So in today's episode, I'm really excited to have actually one of the brains behind basic income on the show. So today we have Guy Standing, who is a professorial research associate at SOAS University of London, and he's also the co-founder of the Basic Income Earth Network. And he's an author of many best-selling books, such as The Precariat, the New Dangerous Class, which has been published in 23 languages. And Guy Stanning has been working with universal basic income for 30 years. And interestingly, now uh, basic income has gained traction the last few years, where tech entrepreneurs such as Elon Musk and Chris Hughes, co-founder of Facebook, now support the idea. And these are billionaires who, you know, are the last people to need a basic income. So the question is, why do they support it? So Guy Standing has been working with a basic income for decades and dedicating his life to it. Uh, but in fact, he's actually one of the lucky few who have been able to test his ideas in practice. And after having run a few pilots in India, the results have turned out positive. So what is basic income? And would it really work? Would people become lazy? Where's the money going to come from? And why has basic income gained so much traction these recent years? And what is the underlying shift to society that has actually led to this increase in interest? So these are some of the questions that we'll cover in today's episode with one of the basic income brains himself. And this interview has been very insightful and challenging. Uh, it's challenging many of the norms that we take in society for granted today. So I would suggest that you stay tuned, uh, you stay open, and get ready to get challenged. So let's get started. Welcome, Professor Guy Standing, to the show. It's very nice to be talking to you. I look forward to it. I wish I were in Sweden. I've been to Sweden many, many times and uh, have good friends. So uh, I'm missing visits to Sweden as in other countries. Mm. So it, this is a nice chat, but uh, it would be better to be there talking to you directly. Hopefully that can happen in the future. <laughs> exactly. So I'm, uh, I'm really excited to have you here. Um, so you are the founder of uh, the, um, the Basic Income Earth Network. And you've also uh, written a lot of books about basic income. Uh, so, um, but just to start for the for the listeners, uh, could you explain um, what is the concept of basic income, and um, really, what are, who are the brains behind it that uh, support it? <laughs> well, I, I'm a co-founder because you need more than one person to okay. found, <laughs> found a, a network. <laughs> but what we want that way found was a group of economists and philosophers mm. uh, in the turn of 1970s, 1980s. Mm. We were very worried about the development of what economists call neoliberalism with Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and a new uh, right-wing economics which was based uh, on the Mont Pelerin Society that had been set up after the Second World War with a lot of right-wing economists. And what we were worried about at that mm -hmm. point was that the 
economy was going to be globalizing, but the labor markets were going to be resulting in much higher levels of unemployment, uh, more flexible labor markets, as, the, as it were called, and a lot more insecurity. And a group of us were writing about basic income as a possible policy in response. So we came together and we formed the network, the BIEN, Basic mm. Income European Network, mm. at that time. And we never expected it to be stronger and more uh, broadly based today than it ever was. And we have conferences all around the world. We have members from all over the world mm. in many, many languages. And the momentum during the pandemic has been fantastic. Mm. Um, more and more people are interested in basic income. And I'm, I'm very pleased that it's also spreading in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's a very important moment that that we see before us, and and I think there are good reasons for that. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned neoliberalism. What what is that? Um... Well, neoliberalism was basically the view that you had to roll back the state, you had to mm -hmm. liberalize markets, particularly mm -hmm. financial markets allow for free trade and allow for individualism, mm. which meant controlling unions, pushing back mm. uh, various state bodies. The word deregulation is commonly used, but actually it was a change of regulation in favor of, of corporate capital mm. and less in favor of protecting workers and working families. So it was a and it, it was an agenda that was powerful because it came at a time of, of inflation and where there was a, a stagnating problem that the world was mm. facing. But the, the, the recipe that the neoliberals came up with meant that automatically millions of people everywhere were going to be made much more insecure. Mm. And that has been the case and we've seen an incredible growth of uh, inequalities all over the world as a result of this uh, ideology which has swept the world. Mm. I believe the high point was in the 1990s of neoliberalism and that then it created what I've called in my books rentier capitalism. And what that means very simply is that more and more of the income and wealth is going to the owners of property, financial property, physical mm. property, and intellect, so-called intellectual property. Mm. And that the what we call the functional uh, distribution of income, in other words, the, the share of income going to capital and the share going to labor, mm. uh, changed dramatically. So that the share going to people who perform labor and work Mm. Uh, has been going down and down and down all over the world, in the United States, in mm. Europe, in China. In, in it's, it's a global phenomenon. And of course, this has created what I've been analyzing for the last 20 years, uh, a changing global class structure. And I think that's very important for this debate because the changing class structure has affected Sweden as much as mm. most other parts of the world. And what I've been arguing is that you have a plutocracy, a tiny percentage of people at the top, these billionaires who are mm. global citizens, very powerful. You have some in Sweden, you have some everywhere. Underneath them is an elite. And both these groups are getting rental income from properties big time. And then you've got the salariat, what I call a salariat. Mm. And what that means is people with employment security, professions, occupations, they've got pensions, they've got paid holidays, all the things that the Swedish model in the post-war era after the Second World War mm. regarded as the norm for, for everybody. That was the expectation. Yeah. And then underneath them is the old working class, which is shrunk. Mm. which was served by the trade unions, by the LO in Sweden, by uh, trade, un trade unions of a similar type elsewhere. 
But you've got underneath that is this growing precariat, which I've mm. been analyzing. And I wrote a book in 2011, mm. uh, which was called The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class. Mm. And it's changed my life as well as uh, resonates around the world. It's been translated into 25 languages, uh, including Swedish. Mm. And it's sold very well in Sweden. And I've been interviewed on Swedish television and, and mm. been interviewed, well, hundreds of times around the world. And I've given about 500 talks before the mm. pandemic uh, hit mm. uh, on the precariat. And every single day, without exception, I receive emails from people around the world who say, I'm part of the precariat. And what, what it means is mm. that people, first of all, they feel they have unstable, insecure labor. Their work is uh, insecure. Okay. That, for me, is not the most important thing. That's mm. not the most important thing. But then they feel they, they're living bits and pieces lives. They feel they're not going anywhere. They feel they don't have a, an occupational narrative to give to their lives, an identity. They can't say, I am becoming something. I am secure in being a professional of some sort. And more and more people in the precariat have to rely just on money wages. They don't get good state benefits. They don't get paid holidays, paid pensions and things like that. And because their wages money wages have been stagnant or falling, mm. most people in the precariat are living on the edge of unsustainable debt, where one accident, one illness, they will be, they fear being out in the streets. And the most important part, and then I'll finish the, the, the definition, mm. is that they feel they're losing the rights of a citizen. They're, yeah. they're losing social rights, cultural rights, economic rights and, and political rights. And this combination of feelings creates a, what I call an existential insecurity. Mm. And that, that is how you feel if you're in the precariat. You feel like a supplicant. Now, I cannot tell you how many people these days are in the precariat, but the pandemic is expanding it very substantially indeed, all over the world. So what could an example of um, a someone in the precariat be? Like, um, if you... Well, for example, I mean, mm. you're not a journalist as such, but, but journalism, mm. for example, it used, oh, yeah. to, be, it used to be a, a profession where you mm. went in uh, at the beginning, you went in as an apprentice and you you gradually, you went from a local newspaper or whatever it was, you gradually worked your way up and, and you became a salaried person in the profession of journalism. Today, most journalists feel they're part of the precariat. That's whenever they interview me, they, they quickly say, well, I know what that is because that's me. Mm. In other words, they feel they're not going anywhere and they expect me in three months time or six months time, they're not going to be a journalist at all. The same with teachers. It, it used to be the case that you went in a teacher and you climbed and you were rest of it. But more and more young teachers, well, not even only young, but others, feel that they could cease being a teacher at any time. They, they don't have security of being there. It's the same in the legal professions, in the medical professions, in, in universities. A lot of people feel that they're there, but then may not be there in another few months. And this sense of insecurity goes right across the board. Mm. Mm. So, if I understand you correctly, the um, so you mentioned before that the the share uh, of um, um, wealth going to um, property owners or um, other yeah. intellectual owners um, versus labor has dramatically yeah. changed, and then. Um, because of that, then basic income would be a means to distribute um, distribute wealth more equally, so that everyone gets one 
uh, unconditional grant each month, right? Uh, well, let me explain. Get. Yeah. Let me explain that. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the problem with what I've called rentier capitalism mm -hmm. is that, that we don't have a market economy really. The big change came in 1994 in some respects because that was the year where in the World Trade Organization they passed what's called TRIPS, which is uh, an acronym for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property. And what okay. that did is globalized the American uh, intellectual property rights system. So before 1994, uh, fewer than one million patents were filed each year around the world. Mm. Okay, Today, each year, it's well over 3 million, and there are 15 million in force. What does that mean? It means that anybody who has a patent has a monopoly income guaranteed uh, mm. by the law to last at least 20 years. And if you're in pharmaceuticals, it could be extended and it can be as much as 40 years. Mm. The same with copyright. Copyright used to be a short-term thing, but now anybody who has copyright on something, it's for the whole of their life plus 70 years. Now, what this has done is guarantee the owners of these patents and copyright and industrial brands a huge monopoly income. And the big corporations, the big tech, the big pharmaceutical, the big, yeah. uh, big corporations everywhere, yeah. buy up patents from people like you and others and string yeah. them all together and make billions from the ownership. That's one thing, okay? And then finance. Finance has become so powerful that if I, if I take my own country, the, the United Kingdom, the value of financial assets in Britain mm. is one over 1,000% of the value of the total national income. Now, it used to be much, much less than that, over 1,000%. And across the OECD countries, you have the same situation where finance is getting more and more of the income and the financiers have more bonuses, more high, high salaries, more, more shares, etc. So we have a system where, because of flexible labor markets, because of all the globalization and the technological revolution that's mm -hmm. been taking place, people relying in the precariat on wages are, are, are being impoverished and being made very insecure. Now, what that leads to is the following fact, which I think anybody going into politics today or anybody who's interested in, in economics uh, should consider, which is that the income distribution system of the 20th century, the last century, has broken down, has broken down, and you will not get it back. And that's the context in which the, when the pandemic struck, we had a uniquely fragile economic system in the world. And it's not at all surprising that the result is a pandemic slump, a big recession, it's a demand shock, where the precariat is going to be growing, all these measures that governments are taking Sometime they've got to stop and then it's going to be much worse and we need we need a change. Mm. Now, that's the context in which basic income has to be considered. Many social Democrats in Sweden, in Britain and elsewhere mm. were traditionally against the idea of a basic income. But the world has changed and they need to change their attitude. Because if you are a progressive person, the first thing you should be wanting is to reduce inequality and to give everybody basic economic security. And that should be your objective. And if it isn't your objective, then you shouldn't consider yourself on the left. You shouldn't consider yourself 
progressive. I'm a green left person. We'll come to the ecology issues in a few minutes, no doubt. But basically, what we're saying with basic income is that the old welfare system can't work. It can't work. It doesn't work in Sweden, where you've got means testing and you've got behavior testing, and it doesn't work in other countries either, because huge numbers of people don't get the income protection that they need to survive. What we're saying is that every individual, every man, every woman, as an individual, should receive a modest basic amount paid each month as an economic right. That amount would be modest to start with, and it's not going to stop people earning incomes in the labor market or from whatever they're doing. It's not a replacement, it just provides a base. And then after that, they can earn incomes and pay the standard rate of taxation or whatever. You deal with that. With supplements paid for people with disabilities or special needs or extra costs or frailty in old age. And you give a smaller amount to for each child paid to the mother or the surrogate mother. Okay. Now, what we've done with I, I, in my books writing about basic income, I've looked at all the arguments for and against, mm -hmm. and we've done pilots now, been in many mm -hmm. countries, and we find that people who have basic incomes, their mental health improves, their physical health improves, they're less susceptible for social illnesses, they, the children of in of parents that have basic security mm. are better health, better nutrition, better in school and so on. And very crucially, contrary to prejudice, people work more, not less. Mm. If they have a basic income, they feel more confident, more energized, more committed, more productive, more cooperative. Mm. And it gives people a sense of belonging, a sense of social solidarity we've seen in the pilots, contrary to many prejudices. And the good thing in terms of when I'm talking to my trade union friends, and I've always been a supporter of trade unions or unions of sorts, as long as they adjust to the realities and are more feminist than they used to be. But, but essentially it strengthens people's bargaining position. If you don't have basic security and somebody, a landlord or an employer or somebody uh, exploits you and oppresses you and treats you badly, you have to put up with it because you're desperate. But if you have basic security, you say F off. You basically, you basically say, I will not be treated like this. And one of the lovely things that we found in, in pilots is that once women have uh, a basic income, if they're in an abusive relationship, they mm. can just say F off and I'm moving out. Mm. And that I think is a powerful reason, a powerful factor, because for me, the basic income, uh, the justification is ethical. Mm. It's a matter of justice. You know, the wealth and income of all of us is generated by our ancestors and generations mm. for us much more than anything we do for ourselves. And if you allow for private inheritance, which they do in Sweden as much as anywhere else, mm. which is a lot of something for nothing, the people who inherit never did any work for it. Mm. So let's either you say you shouldn't be a basic income because it's money that you're not earned. Well, then that case, abolish of inheritance tomorrow morning because otherwise you're being hypocritical. But the point is that, in fact, it's a matter of justice. It's, it's like a social dividend from the past. And it and basic security is a human need. 99% of us want to have a sense of basic security. They want to wake up in the morning when we feel, yes, I'm going to have enough for my food and my rent or whatever. I, I know that. Instead of which, we're allowing millions and millions of people across the world 
in rich countries to be waking up fearful every single day and probably not sleeping because of the same feeling. And finally, the a basic income is an emancipatory instrument. If you have basic income, you are more free. You're free to say no, you're free to say yes, you're free to look people in the eyes as an equal citizen. And for me, that is a very important reason. But you can deal with the objections, the affordability, mm. the inflation issue. You can deal with those. And if we may, you may want to ask me about that. But for me, it's an ethical uh, matter. Mm. And I'm pleased to say that, that in the course of this pandemic, huge numbers of people, including a majority of people in opinion polls across the mm. European Union, have, are now in, in favor of it. Yeah. So I, I think what you're describing from a humanistic perspective, I think a lot of people would agree um, in a, 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 but the most common thing, right, is that people are wondering where is the money going to come from? <laughs> so how well, would you explain that to a typical industrial CFO who's wondering, well, will actually, it work? <laughs> actually, funnily enough, yeah, uh, yeah quite a lot of business people mm. uh, have come around to, to agreeing with it. Mm. They usually can do their maths, they can do the basic mm -hmm. economics, and they can work out that it's affordable easily enough. Um, the, the better question these days is, can we afford not to have it? Mm. It's very, very expensive to have a lot of people insecure and relying on complex benefits and so on. Mm. But we've seen in this pandemic, as we saw in the financial crash in 2008, mm. that when governments want to find money, they suddenly find they can find billions mm. to give to the banks or the financial markets and prop them up. Hundreds of billions of euros were spent mm. pouring into the financial markets after 2008. And most of the money went to the affluent bankers and financiers who invested it in China and elsewhere and boosted their own incomes even more, right? Mm. Now, we didn't ask at that time, how do we afford it? Mm. They found the money. And of course they did. And they could have found the money, instead of spending it in that way, to spend it in giving people, ordinary Swedes, ordinary Brit, British people, a modest basic income, and it would have cost less. And it would have been more beneficial for the economy and for proper businesses because it would stimulate demand for goods and services inside Sweden, inside Britain, or inside whatever country. And, and I, in terms of this pandemic slump, we, we need to bolster demand. So they need to be increasing spending by ordinary people. In the longer term, I would roll back subsidies uh, that are spent by governments and giving to special interests that are often completely unjustifiable, like fuel subsidies, which have ecological costs and sub huge subsidies to landowners and landlords and things like that. Mm. And you, in most countries, the subsidies given, which is a lot of money for very little, if anything at all, comes to 5 or 6% of GDP, national income. If you will use that yeah, money, like yeah, if you use that money to give a, just a modest basic income to everybody, you, you could afford it without raising income tax. And in fact, I believe, mm that we need tax reform, because I don't believe in taxing incomes, earned incomes more, but I do believe we need tax reform in terms of ecological taxes. We need in every country high carbon taxes if we're going to be serious about the threat of extinction. Unless we have carbon taxes, we're going to see continuing high energy use going into mm. the future. These mm. aspirations about cutting energy are going to be pipe dreams. Unless we have 
carbon tax. Now, the trouble with carbon tax is that a poor person, it's, it's a higher percentage of their income than for a richer person. And actually, it's the rich people who use up more energy than the poor. But the only way to make it politically popular and acceptable and progressive, in other words, reducing inequality, is to take the revenue from eco-taxes and recycle it in the form of a basic income for everybody, because then it becomes progressive, because the basic income is a higher percentage of a poor person's total income than it is mm. for a wealthier person. Those, are, those on the left who say, yes, but why give it to the rich? I would say, look, it's much easier to give everybody a basic income and then tax back, if you wish, in any way you like, so that a wealthier person is neither better off nor worse off as a, as a result of the basic mm. income. Okay? That's much better than trying to identify who is poor and who is not poor. Because that's how governments have gone. They, they, traditionally, they, and it's happened in Sweden. I even wrote a book on Sweden many years ago, mm. looking at the labor market. And I worked with Rudolf Meidner, and he came around to support basic income. And, and the, the, the trouble with the way that the Swedish welfare system has gone, and the British welfare system has gone, and all, all welfare systems, is then they've moved away from universalism, from insurance base, because it doesn't work in a flexible labor market, to means testing. And that means they, you have to prove you're poor before you get a benefit. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that, as anybody should be able to work out, that means that if you prove that you are non-poor, you lose your benefits. So it's a huge disincentive for people to take low-wage jobs because they would lose their benefits for a little extra money. Now, it turns out in many countries that the, what this means is that the marginal tax rate mm. for somebody who's unemployed, who takes a low-wage job, can be over 80%. So that's no incentive to take those jobs. In other words, you lose almost as much as you gain. Mm. Now, that's the reality. So what do governments do? They force the unemployed to take those low-wage jobs. They force them, and they punish them by taking away their benefits if they don't take those jobs. And they call them rude names and say they're lazy or they're not, they work shy or all sorts of rude names. But it's not fair. It's basically not fair because there isn't that incentive. Whereas if you have a basic income and then you have, a, have your earned income and you pay the standard rate of tax, whatever that might be, then you have an incentive to take those jobs. Mm. So for, for me, it's just bad economics, those mm. who oppose it uh, on welfare grounds. But, but in the longer term, I believe, and I've argued this in a book called Plunder of the Commons, that we have to build national commons capital funds. And as they are built, the return to those funds can be used to pay out the basic income. And the country that has done best is Norway. Norway has a fantastic capital fund, which it set up with its oil revenue. But you don't have to do it from oil. You can do it from other purposes, mm. from other sources. And, and for me, this is the direction we need to, to go. It would make the market economy function better. It would reduce inequality, insecurity, lessen stress, and have ecological advantages. And that is, in the end, an extremely important aspect. Mm. I mean, you're mentioning a lot of those benefits around stress, health, etc. But I mean, those also, they do have economic value, right? All the burnouts in society, there's uh, the administrative costs of, of uh, determining who is poor and not. And um, so, it, so it was interesting that you mentioned that subsidy. I didn't know that that would by itself, um, uh, that it would um, um, make it financially viable only reducing those subsidies. But um, Well, you see, and for me, to, mm. the, for me at the moment, 
we need an emergency basic income in this pandemic. Okay. Mm. And I would use some of the money that the governments mm. are spending, like they're, they're spending it like confetti at the moment. They're just throwing money to the banks and the financial markets. And it will go largely to the banks and the financial markets to make up their money. That's why the billionaires last year made more money than any other year. I mean, the, the billionaires mm. of the world saw a huge increase in their their wealth, whereas the rest of us were struggling with with all sorts of loss of income and so on. But the but the rentiers have done extremely well. So the Jeff Bezoses of the world have made hundred extra billion dollars or whatever it might be, whereas the ordinary person is being left uh, way back. I believe that the money that their governments and the central banks are spending should have been spent on ordinary people. And that is, that is why I, I think the, the stimulus package that's just been introduced in the United States by Biden, mm. I think is, is a, what we call in English a straw in the wind. Because mm. basically it includes something that is approaching a basic income. Every yeah, yeah. American, or nearly every American, will be getting a check for $1,400. Of course, that's not enough to be a proper basic income. But when you're down on your, your luck and down on your mm. debts and, and stressed and so on, to know that that's coming in mm. and that that will be a start for you makes a mm. huge difference. Mm. Um, and, and we've seen that in various countries uh, where even an extra you know, 100 per, per week or whatever it might be, phew, that makes a difference to someone who has, is struggling to survive. Yeah. I think it's um, you mentioned the um, that the the share of uh, wealth going to to capitalists have have gone up increasingly, um, and it, the 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 capitalist of the modern world today is a lot of the times the the tech giants, right? Um, but I think the interesting thing is that a lot of uh, the CEOs or the founders of all these tech companies, such as uh, Elon Musk or um, the Facebook founder Chris Huge, um, uh, they support basic income. Um, what like what is the dynamics behind that? <laughs> well, I think I mean I know Chris Hughes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he, he he stepped down from uh, mm -hmm. Facebook and so on, mm -hmm. and he supports basic income a mm -hmm. lot. And a number of other people in Silicon Valley, I've been invited over there. They see it slightly differently. They okay. see it. They see it as the outcome of AI and the technological revolution. Many of them believe that we're going to have mass displacement of workers, okay? And there are a lot of people will not have jobs. I don't agree with that perspective in the sense that I think there's always going to be work mm. to be done. There's always going to be uh, different activities that we can do. But where I agree with them, is that the technological revolution is increasing the inequality of incomes because the owners of assets are gaining most of the income. And that is a situation which is crying out for change. It must be changed. Mm. And I've spoken to them. I, you know, I was invited to speak in Davos and I some of the biggest names there. They came up to me after I'd given a talk and they said, I, we agree because we are earning too much. We are getting too much. I mean, you know, you get some that are really nasty that who just think that they're they're brilliant and therefore they deserve all their money. But most of them are human beings, and most of them know very well that equivalent people to them thirty years ago would not have been making nearly as much money as they make. Mm, okay. okay? They're doing even more brilliant than they are, whatever it might be. Many of them know they get, they, they've basically been lucky. You know, I mean, Warren Buffett, who is one of the wealthiest financiers ever, he, he recently said, look, I, I have to admit that much of my money is due to society, to pe ordinary people, that I've made, I've, it's not my brilliance, I've, I've been lucky. Okay, 
And I think that the system is crying out for reform because the more sensible people in the plutocracy mm. say, if with this continues, we're going to see another Donald Trump, we're going to see more neo-fascist populism, more social discord, more pandemics, because people won't have the resilience to withstand it. And I think this is, this is a pivotal moment in 2021 because we have surely learned one big lesson over the past year. The resilience of society depends on the resilience of the weakest members of society. Mm. And we've learned that a lot of us are among the weakest of society. A lot of us. We are all vulnerable. Not all, but most of us feel vulnerable. And suddenly, we're suddenly saying, look, we need to have a different system that makes us less vulnerable, mm. to give us a sense of security. And I think that's teaching us humility, reviving our sense of solidarity, which has always been important. You know, I know that in Sweden as elsewhere. And, and that, I think, is going to say, this is a time for change. Mm. This is a time for change. And I'm quietly optimistic that once two or three countries have moved decisively with a basic income, then a whole lot more will suddenly want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you. Uh, I mean, we're rethinking the pandemic, I guess, also is making us rethink how we work. And that, um, like it, uh, it's interesting that it's you know it's considered work if you get paid to take care of someone's grandmother, but not if you take care of your own, right? <laughs> well, I've always argued, I've always argued that every age mm. has its stupidity in saying what is work and what is not work, and mm. that our age is the most stupid of all. You put your finger on it. If if I look after my elderly mother, that's not called work. If I look after your elderly mother, it's called work. Now that that is about as stupid as possible. Mm. But of course, it's sexist. Because all the work that women traditionally have done in mm. terms of care of their children, of their elderly, of themselves, etc, mm. etc, et that for which they're not paid a wage, mm. is not counted as work. And that is that is absurd. And the welfare state treated that as non-work. It only gave benefits mm. to people who performed labor. And yeah. that's why I I mean, you know, it's all very well to say, well, if women go into jobs, they should be treated equally. That's that's not real feminism and it's not real egalitarianism, because basically it should be that everybody should be treated equally and we should treat it dignity all the forms of work that are not counted as labor. And I'm afraid the trade unions traditionally were as responsible for the neglect of women's work in the real sense of women's work and other forms of voluntary work and care work in the community as anybody else. Mm. And that's what I, why I feel that the unions cease to be a progressive force in in the 1980s and so on and and they they didn't become truly feminist truly egalitarian mm. and now they've got to because otherwise the precariat is angry women are angry people in the ecology movements are angry with unions <laughs> and they need friends and we need unions let's get let's not forget that we need collective bodies because without collective bodies, we're all vulnerable. Mm. So it's, it's, it's basically saying the unions must transform themselves. The left must transform themselves to be more emancipatory and be more transformative and, of course, more green. Green in the sense that we must rescue nature, rescue our relationships with nature. Yeah. And getting back to the point you were beginning to make, I think, which is to revive what we mean by work. Mm. All of us 
are working animals. That's being human. But it doesn't mean I want to be in a bloody job all the time. I want to be able to work on my allotment, my gardening, my care, my family, my reproducing my, my skills, developing myself, developing my relationships. Mm. We must think of work in a better way. Mm. And I always hated when I was talking to Swedish social democrats, they talk about the work line, when actually they meant the labor line. They didn't mean work in the sense I'm talking about it. They talked about jobs, 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 jobs. Mm -hmm. And then if they had any breath left, they, they talked about jobs. I mean, <laughs> that, that, to me, that, I mean, being in a job is being in a position of subordination to a boss. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be necessary because we need, we need, we do need jobs. We do need labor. We do need production. So don't anyone say, um, you know, dismissing that. I'm just saying that that is not the only thing that matters. And the way we look at work determines how we relate to nature, to ourselves, to our families, our communities, mm -hmm. and to each other. And I think that this pandemic slump mm -hmm. has given a lot of people time for a reflection. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need. In other words, there are a lot of us saying, I don't want to go back to what we organized to do in the way it was being done in the past. We, we don't want that. We want this sense of freedom. We want to be productive. It's not a question of saying uh, you're wanting to be lazy. Rubbish. Rubbish. Mm -hmm. don't, don't come with that prejudice. Mm -hmm. Think about this is an opportunity to retune mm -hmm. the way we live. And that's mm -hmm. wonderful. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, that is uh, that is also one of the arguments, right? That the the forty-hour work week is uh, obsolete, and uh, in, in I think a lot of people are probably um, rethinking that as well now during the pandemic. Um, but what is? Um, I think I read somewhere that the optimal amount of hours to work per week, if you do the kind of creative problem-solving jobs, um, is actually twenty-five. Is that I, um... I, I, I don't know. It varies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. I, one of the things I think that was part of the industrial model mm -hmm. of the 20th century was the working week, right? You, because it, it was modeled on factories and mines and the workers went for 40 hours or whatever number of hours it was. And that was you clocked in, you clocked out. We're not living in an industrial society today. Many of us, in fact, if you took a diary and put down the hours you do in the different forms of work, in the sense I've just been talking about it, you don't work 40 hours, you work 50 or 60 hours during the course of a week, right? Many of us do that, but we're doing it in a different context. I know that I, since I ceased having a job, hmm. I've worked much more, okay? But it's work, it's work that's bound up with your enthusiasms and your energy and your body clock. Hmm. And also, it depends on the time of your life, the period of your life, the way you are, what, what state your family is in, and so on. So that varies. That's, I, I don't believe in a regimented answer that's based on a 20th century model. Mm -hmm. In other words, shorten the working week to 25 hours. Okay. okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 yeah. I, that's a rigid... It's flexible. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, I don't know. There are certain periods of my life where I would have liked just to work 24, mm -hmm. 25 hours or whatever it might be. But, but you can't tell everybody... They can only work 25 hours or four days a week or whatever it was, mm -hmm. because that's not the nature of our society or our makeup constitutionally mm -hmm. as human beings. You know, some people really want to work very, very hard for 20 years so that they can have five years to go around the world and sail mm -hmm. or whatever it might mm -hmm. be. What's wrong with that? Okay. Mm -hmm. Or some people might want to work less at a certain period because they want to study more or play with art or, or do things. Mm. 
and then have an intensive period where they start to make money to, to support them in, in later life. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, Rudolf Meidner used to propose a sabbatical, a sabbatical break for everybody in Sweden. And that was the start of it, except that I wanted him to go further and say, you know, uh, basically, we should create the capacity for people to make choices. Mm. Now, if you believe in freedom, and whether you're on the left or the right, that should be part of your intellectual armory. You should want the same flexibility for others as you want for yourself. Mm. Otherwise, you're a selfish bastard. Mm. <laughs> but, but, but basically, I think this pandemic is making people much more reflective about how we all want to live. And yeah. that would be great. Yeah. And uh, you, you have actually done uh, some interesting, some promising uh, test results in India um, yeah. uh, doing um, a pilot on basic income. Do you want to share a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 you're talking to a man who's been fortunate in a sense mm. that ideas that I've believed for many years, many of us never get a chance to actually put them into practice and mm. see what happens. And that's happened to me in Africa, where we've done pilots, and mm. in Latin America, and in India, as you've just mentioned. Mm. And I've been working with the Self-Employed Women's Association for uh, over 20 years. Mm. And one day they asked me to give a talk uh, in Ahmedabad on basic income, all women leaders from around India. And I got, gave them a talk, and then some young women from villages st mm. stood up together, and they said, "Why don't we do it here?" Mm. So I, I was very keen to do it, and it took us three years to raise enough money uh, mm. and to design the pilot and the rest of it. And in the end, we did three pilots. One we gave families in West Delhi. Uh, a choice. We said to them, you can either have the continued subsidized food and, and energy, or instead of that, you can have the money equivalent mm. and a basic mm. income. Okay? And to start with, because people had got used to the, what's called the public distribution system subsidy scheme, mm. uh, half chose the basic income, half chose mm. to stay with the subsidies. But then after about three months, most of the people who'd stayed with the subsidies came to us and said, please, can we change? Mm. Because they had seen the effect that having the money was able to do. The people who had the money, they, they got better food, they got better choices, mm. they could make decisions, they could uh, tide each other over. But then we did a much bigger pilot in a state called Madhya Pradesh, where we gave 6,000 men, women, and children, an individual, it's a very important thing, it must be individual, individual basic incomes. Mm. And we compared over the course of the following two years what happened to them with another 6,000 in similar villages elsewhere mm. who did not receive the basic income. Mm. And if you do something like that and you have it, you have independent uh, monitors, you have independent mm data gathering, etc. You obviously are taking a risk because it could have failed. But mm. on the contrary, what happened was that within, and we've written a mm. book and big reports mm. and conferences on it, uh, it's called Basic Income, uh, a transformative idea for India. And the, the, the results were roughly like this. The first thing that happened is nutrition improved particularly in the nutrition mm. of children, weight for age uh, improved for those children on average. Second, the sanitation was improved. Some people put some money together to build toilets, increase mm. the cleaning. <laughs> the health helped mm. with the health improvement. The health improved the incidence of illness, common illnesses declined, partly because better nutrition, partly because they could get medicines. And 
they started using some of the money. It was very low amount, the mm. amount we were paying, but they all pooled it together and gradually they got some control. And they, they spent it on transport to get their children to school. So more of the girls were going to school. That was very important. But the different families had different needs. You see, we couldn't have said beforehand yeah, yeah. Mm. what their needs were. They varied. And very interestingly, we asked at the end, who do you think benefited more, men or women? And both the men and the women said women. And that was because before most women didn't have any income or, or had very low incomes. But interestingly, the amount of work done by all the groups increased quite a lot. And the amount of income generated from that work increased. So that people's incomes rose more than the basic income. You follow me? And, and, and this, of course, produced more output. It reduced the inequalities. Mm. And contrary to what Sonia Gandhi had told us beforehand, that she said, well, that pushed prices up. Prices went down. And the reason was that production increased. Uh, they, this, they, yeah. <laughs> and, and therefore, the unit price of wheat or services went down. But the people producing it made more money because they sold more. Mm, mm, okay, mm. So you had a, a multiplier effect in mm. those communities. And, and I, I found it very moving. Uh, we've made videos and things uh, mm. of, of the outcome. And I really want more countries to be doing pilots today. Mm, mm. There are over 30 cities and towns now in England that have voted, the councils voted mm -hmm. to do pilots. And in Scotland, I helped mm. design and, and advise mm. on how it could be introduced. And we've seen pilots in the United States, we're seeing pilots in Canada, pilots in Africa, pilots in, in Asia, a lot of pilots in Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and it's really taking off. And if there's one message I could would like to say to you uh, and my Swedish friends, it would be great if somewhere in Sweden was mm. to do a pilot and some wealthy philanthropist mm. or business person who really believes in reviving the Swedish mm. model in a different way, mm. uh, come and put some money into something like that. Or if the government would have the courage uh, mm. to do it because at the moment, Inequalities are much too great in, in Sweden. Mm. Insecurities yeah. are too great. The precariat is suffering and the political parties have been boringly out of date. <laughs> and this applies in every country that I know in, in Europe at the moment. And we are not going to get out of an era of pandemics, an era of insecurity, unless we move in this direction. I am totally convinced on that. Mm. And the evidence from around the world mm. is pointing to it. But it, the biggest question of all is, will the politicians mm. get away from their spaghetti spines? <laughs> their spaghetti uh, spines. They're, they lack the courage to face the future. We need a new future. And that mm. is so critical at this moment. And I think that's the point on which I'd like to end my talk to you. Yeah, that's the, um, exactly. That's the, 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 the last point is, right, that the, we have actually a new uh, political party uh, that I don't think a lot of people in Sweden know of yet, but it's called the Basinkomspartiet, the Basic Income Party, which you are also supporting. Um, so uh, why... I think, we, I think yeah. it's, it's mm. a time for realignments on, on mm. parties. Mm. Mm. Um, I think that the green left, the greens, they've all got to come together. I, it's very difficult to get a totally new party. Mm. I know people across the spectrum in Sweden mm. and, and we need a new energy, mm. a new precariat movement. Mm. Uh, and, and for me, it, the young have got to stand up and shout. Mm. They've got to shout. 
And of course, during lockdowns and this period, uh, it's been difficult for anybody to shout. But I think coming out of this pandemic is going to be a time for energy mm. for, for all our futures and most of all for the, the mm. environment and the way we live. And we've got to spend a bit of time being energized and not just thinking of ourselves. That's um, uh, a good way to end this interview. Um, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Um, and I think it will be a lot of interesting things happening in the future around this. And hopefully, as you're saying, we will get out of this more energized and building a better future. <laughs> good. Nice talking to you, Marie. Thank you so much. <laughs>